The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. The Affordable Care Act. Well, it is being challenged, at least rhetorically, by Republicans in the House, the Senate, and soon to be in the White House. John Gruber is a professor of economics at MIT, and many people consider him a key architect of the Obamacare program. He joins us now. John Gruber, thank you, sir. Good to be here. Can you explain some of the specific elements of the Affordable Care Act which you believe need improvement? Uh, I think the major issue with the Affordable Care Act that needs improvement is the fact that ensure that competition has not been as strong as we might have hoped on these exchanges and that insurers, as a result, have had to raise premiums more than we might have hoped. I think that really, in some sense, what needs to happen is simply the law needs to be implemented the way it was written. And what I mean by that is two things. First of all, the states where things are worst are the states that have not expanded their Medicaid programs, leaving sick individuals into the exchanges rather than being covered by lower-cost Medicaid. Second of all, um, what's happened is in the law there was reinsurance payments to insurers that were scheduled to be paid to help them withstand the vicissitudes of entering a new market. Republicans blocked those payments, and so insurers suffered billions of costs they didn't plan to when they signed up for the Obamacare exchanges. So if the law had really been implemented as planned, I think it would have gone a lot better. Okay, well, let, let, let's just take that first one just so we can understand it. You say that people who should have gone into the lower-cost Medicaid program right. went into an exchange-based program. Th th that's correct. So the way Obamacare was set up was individuals below 138% of the poverty line, or, you know, like $15,000 for an individual, were supposed to be in the government Medicaid program, which pays providers less and is sort of a more, you know, is basically a more managed type of care. And individuals above that level were supposed to be in the exchanges, buying private insurance along with people of, of higher income levels. Uh, the problem was when states chose to turn down the free opportunity to cover their uninsured, the really crazy decision to not expand Medicaid, people between 100 and 138 percent of poverty became eligible for exchanges. So people who, say, in California would be getting Medicaid, people between 100 and 138 percent of poverty would be getting Medicaid. In Florida, they're in the exchanges. As a result, actually, the state with the most people in the exchanges in America is Florida, which has vociferously fought the Affordable Care Act. Okay. Can you reconcile that, though, with the idea that there are people many times above the uh the income level in order to qualify for Medicaid, because it also has to do with some efforts on part of the government to figure out your assets, but that are paying maybe 500 or more dollars a month in premiums for the least expensive plan that is on offer on the exchange, and yet 
the deductible is so high that it makes paying the premium almost crazy unless you know that you are going to use some type of long stay, long-term stay or catastrophic element of the plan. So basically, I think when you evaluate any law like the Affordable Care Act, you have to evaluate it relative not to the world we wish existed, but the world that would have existed otherwise. The problem you're pointing out is not about the Affordable Care Act. It's about the super high cost of health care in the U.S. We as a nation are spending 17% of our income on health care. In a world that pays 70% of income on our health care, a high-income family paying the kind of cost you're laying out is exactly what you'd expect. You know, in a high-income family is going to have spending 10-plus percent of their income on health care in a world where the nation as a whole is spending 17 percent. So really, that's not about Obamacare. That's about the fundamental long-run problem of high costs, which Obamacare has done more to address than any legislation in U.S. history. If you look at the cost of employer-sponsored insurance, since Obamacare has been passed, They've fallen by $3,600 relative to what would have happened otherwise. Well, wait, wait, wait. you say relative to what would have happened otherwise, but you I recognize, or I would imagine you admit that if you ask people what has happened to the premiums of their health insurance that they are either paying for themselves or for their employees, you would not be surprised if you heard them say, it has gone up dramatically. Well, you know, I would not be surprised at all. And so... This is the really difficult problem that I think um, people who developed Obamacare did not appreciate enough beforehand, which is that when you reform the system, you own the system. And what that means is people hold you really, in some sense, to not uh, the standard of what would have happened otherwise, but the standard of everything they don't like is your fault. And essentially, we have a system that's too expensive. Premiums since Obamacare have risen. They have risen much more slowly than they were rising before Obamacare, but they've still risen. And the question is what Obamacare supporters didn't do a good enough job doing. I don't know how we could have done it, but clearly we couldn't have done a better job. would be to explain to people, to, to set up more realistic expectations that Obamacare was the first step towards addressing the problems of the U.S. healthcare system, not the solution. Having said that, can you also uh, maybe give us your perspective on, you say that would be the first step, but knowing the way that legislation and the government works, you're only only going to get one or two chances during an entire administration. So to say that it's the first step implies that you're going to be able to roll out these improvements on an ongoing basis. That really just never happened. But, but that's actually not true. I mean, take Medicare. That's the largest single health care program in the country. It's 50 years old. We're continually changing it. No, no, We're but I'm talking, about, I'm talking about Obama. I'm talking about the Affordable Care Act, not, no, no, not Medicare. No but, no, but here's the reason I point it. You said we won't be able to make those changes. Why not? Well, because, we continue- you, because you have a Republican administration coming in. Ah, but that's a separate issue. That's a separate issue. Obama- but as political, as political and policy experts, isn't that one of the most fundamental things to take into consideration, that you might sure. not be around in the next four years to implement whatever improvements you think are necessary to make it work for people? Sure. So what you do in that situation, you pass a law that has two criteria. A, it makes things better than if the law did not exist. And B, it hopefully sets up a flexible enough system that well-intentioned people can continue to improve it. That's exactly what Obamacare did. It made the world better. The health care costs are growing more slowly. More people have health insurance coverage. They made the world better than it was without Obamacare. But it was impossible to pass a law that literally fixed the system because, quite frankly, we don't know how. 
there's still too much unknown. So what you do is you make the world better, and you set up a system where well-intentioned governments, which doesn't seem like this is going to be one, but where well-intentioned governments can continue to improve things. That's all you can do. I mean, you can't solve all the world's problems in one fell swoop. No piece of legislation has ever done that. The best legislation moves in the right direction and sets you up to continue to move in that direction when you have governments who are willing to do so. Well done. Thanks very much. Uh, John Gruber, he is a professor of economics at MIT. He is considered a key architect of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. We'll have to wait and see in 2017 what President-elect Donald Trump and House and Senate Republicans have in mind for any changes or repeal of Obamacare. U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that the Kremlin approved the attacks on the Democratic National Committee and other political organizations. The United States has retaliated, and now President Vladimir Putin of Russia says he will not retaliate for President Obama's expulsion of 35 suspected operatives. This comes hours after the Russian foreign minister publicly recommended a response. Here to tell us what is going on is Nick Wadhams. He is our foreign policy reporter for Bloomberg, and he joins us now from Washington, D.C., home to Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 HD2. Nick, give us the latest on this he said, he said, and now you're expelled, you're not expelled saga. Uh, well, it's really interesting. Uh, so earlier today, you know, the, the expectation was that uh, Russia would respond in kind. I mean, traditionally, how these things work is if the U.S. expels uh, another country's diplomats, it's just sort of pro forma that they respond by expelling uh, the same number of uh, American diplomats uh, from their country. And indeed, that appeared to be what was going to happen after the foreign ministry recommended uh, that Russia do so. Then uh, it, it, Putin overturned that and said we're not going to. I mean, obviously, whether he actually overturned it or the whole thing was sort of an orchestrated uh, dance uh, is up for debate. But, uh, you know, he said uh, he portrayed it as basically taking the high ground, uh, saying we're not going to stoop to this sort of uh, kitchen uh, politics, as he called it. Uh, but really, uh, it's it's an acknowledgement that, that Russia just wants to wait until Donald Trump comes to office and test his uh, claim to seek better relations. So clearly they just see him as sort of a more reliable negotiating partner. Now, Nick, I got a chance, and I mean, I guess you can, anyone can look at this, of course, because it is uh, available on the uh, joint analysis uh, website of the U.S. Uh, intelligence, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, as well as the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. And it goes into quite a detailed analysis of what is called Grizzly Step. This is the Russian malicious cyber activity. This has been going on, according to the report, since 2015. Right. That's right. And, you know, this was, uh, I think what we're seeing is partly an attempt by the Obama administration to make the case both to uh, the American public, who may have uh, been doubtful about the claims against Russia, but also to Donald Trump and his own teams. And what they've sort of been saying 
recently is, you know, there's not a consensus in the intelligence community. We've had lots of um, uh, anonymous statements from various uh, members of the intelligence community, but no full consensus where everybody says, okay, we are all united on what we think is going on. Uh, and Trump had actually pointed to the FBI and had said, well, where's the FBI in this? We've had the CIA and others, but I'm still waiting to hear from the FBI. Well, now we've heard from them. Uh, and so we're all sort of waiting to see how he internalizes and processes this information and whether that changes his calculus and brings him down uh, a little bit more firmly on the side of those who say Russia should be punished. Now, the summary also offers details of the actual hacks, uh, whether it is from something called App 29 or App 28, and it talks in right. detail about remote access tools and how they actually gained access to many emails and email accounts because in 2015 they started something called a spear phishing campaign and that created a link that made it possible for them to steal information from the computers of these U.S. government as well as uh, political organizations. Well, that's right. I mean, the thing that's partly so interesting about all of this is for all the, the discussion about technical matters and uh, covert cyber campaigns and uh, classified information, I mean, the way that uh, some of this started was uh, just hackers sending a fake email to John Podesta, allegedly or purporting to be from Google, telling him to change his password. So when he clicked on it and changed his password, uh, hackers had information, to, uh, had access to his entire Gmail account, and that's where you saw a lot of the WikiLeaks, or all, all the WikiLeaks um, emails come from. So it was a very, actually, simple uh, operation to get uh, that that email account. But, you know, again, what we're really seeing is the Obama administration sort of making its case and being very explicit about why it thinks Russia is involved and being willing to disclose the evidence uh, to back that up. Thank you. Nick Wadhams, our foreign policy reporter for Bloomberg. The Supreme Court of the United States normally consists of the Chief Justice of the United States and eight associate justices who are nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. Well, we only have eight right now. And in addition to President-elect Donald Trump taking the oath of office on January 20th, is it possible that there will be another oath administered for Supreme Court justice? Let's find out from Kimberly Robinson, a BNA reporter for Bloomberg News. Bloom, uh, for the Supreme Court, I beg your pardon. Uh, Kimberly, thank you very much for, for being with me today. Um, tell us a little bit about what you expect to happen in 2017 and maybe give us some names of individuals who you believe are being considered for a place on the Supreme Court. Well, the Trump campaign itself actually provided a list of 21 names that are being considered as possible nominees. Uh, they provided this list before the election, but have since confirmed that they will be picking from that list. And in fact, on December 1st, Donald Trump indicated that uh, he would release the name very soon, possibly before his inauguration. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we'll have a sitting justice before then. Um, any potential nominee still has to go through confirmation hearings and and those could be uh, quite controversial, really depending on who it, who it is that Donald Trump uh, decides to ultimately nominate. So are there some particular individuals? I note 
Bill Pryor, former Alabama Attorney General, Thomas Hardiman. Uh, he's on the Philadelphia Appeals Court. Uh, Steve uh, Culleton, the uh, also U.S. Court of Appeals from Iowa. Tell us some of the p- individuals being considered. Right. Those are three of the five individuals who have really come out um, as the front runners. Um, and as you mentioned, a lot of these individuals are fed- are currently federal appellate court judges, so that could speed up the confirmation process. I think the consensus is that the two front runners really are Bill Pryor, whom you mentioned, um, and Diane Sykes. Now, Donald Trump has said that he wants to nominate somebody who's in the mold of Justice Scalia, who is responsible for the vacancy on the court. Um, somebody who's tested, who wouldn't have any surprises for conservatives, um, which has happened for other Republican nominees, and somebody who's young enough uh, to really impact the court and judicial uh, and um, cases for a long time. Now, both Bill Pryor and Diane Sykes fit the, that bill. They're the two individuals that Donald Trump name-dropped back in February when Justice Scalia first passed away. Uh, and, you know, they're both, as I mentioned, long-term federal appellate court judges who have ruled favorably on conservative issues like uh, abortion and the Second Amendment. Um, but Bill Pryor um, is a more controversial pick. You know, he has once referred to Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court's landmark abortion decision as the worst abomination in constitutional legal history. Um, and so if if Donald Trump wants to avoid uh, a very tough confirmation fight, he may instead go with Diane Sykes. Uh, she was a single mom who uh, has said that her philosophy is one of judicial resp- restraint. So she could be an easier confirmation battle uh, for a new administration. What are some of the specific cases you believe will be important in 2017 for the court? Well, the specific cases um, that are already at the court um, include things on transgender rights, um, and we may be seeing issues uh, on immigration coming back to the court. And those are things actually some of these judges are already dealing with. You know, Diane Sykes, uh, she sits in a federal appellate court in Chicago and is dealing with transgender rights um, out there. And uh, so I, I think that that's an issue that will be closely looked at in their confirmation hearings um, and something that we'll be hearing about from the Supreme Court um, in the next year. I'm glad you mentioned those confirmation hearings. What is the thinking on part of the Democrat senators who will have to approve or at least not filibuster the nominations? Well, these five individuals are not interchangeable. They really are quite different. And so, uh, as I said in the beginning, it really depends on who Donald Trump chooses to pick. As I've suggested, Bill Pryor uh, could be a really tough confirmation battle, and Democrats may decide to dig in their heels. They certainly did that when he was up uh, for nomination for the court that he sits on now. Uh, Democrats were able to drag his confirmation battle out for two full years. But someone like Diane Sykes might be um, easier for Democrats to uh, get behind. And, you know, the math for Democrats, especially Senate Democrats in 2018, is is pretty difficult. They may not want to have a big fight on this first nominee, especially considering that there may be some uh, Supreme Court vacancies coming up again in the near future. In that context, how long do you think it will be before we learn the actual name of the nominee? I think it could be... uh, anytime in the next coming days. As I mentioned, it was December 1st when Donald Trump said that he would very soon drop the name. Um, So we're about a month out from that. Um, I would expect us to hear a name sometime very soon. 
Well, we'll have to wait and see, but I want to thank you very much for keeping us up to date. Kimberly Robinson is our Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg BNA. We have to watch closely, and indeed, one of the uh, federal judges uh, that uh, Donald Trump's team has indicated might be a possible fit for the Supreme Court, uh, Diane Sykes, a federal judge of the United States Courts of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Well, maybe she'll have something to celebrate. Her birthday was just on December the 23rd, so we wish her a belated happy birthday. Well, we call on Chuck Lieberman, the chief investment officer and managing partner at Advisors Capital Management, to help us navigate our investment portfolios and strategies. He helps to manage $1.3 billion, and he joins us from Ridgewood, New Jersey. Chuck Lieberman, thank you for being with me. Uh, Give us your outlook for 2017, and maybe you can take a look at it in terms of industry groups that will fare well and those that will fare poorly. Well, we see uh, some continuing trends from 2016. Um, Trump's election, I think, reinforces a lot of those trends that we see in place. So we see policies that are a bit more pro-growth, whether it's cutting uh, taxes at the corporate level or at the individual level, increased government spending, deregulation, all of those work in the same direction for stronger growth. So that suggests that sectors that are more cyclical should benefit. Sectors that are less cyclical should be hurt, both because of the better economy, but also because of upward pressure on uh, inflation and wage rates and and interest rates. Um, And and that gets back to the notion that the truth of the matter is the U.S. economy hasn't fared that badly. The unemployment rate has come down pretty dramatically. We're at obviously cyclical lows, and and even at full employment by the Fed's own definition, uh, although they haven't really reacted much to it yet. But if you then get some incremental strength in the economy, which everyone seems to think is coming, uh, that has a a pretty negative implication for the bond market, uh, and therefore also a negative implication for everything in the stock market that is very, very interest rate sensitive notably things like uh, real estate investment trusts, utilities, uh, telephone companies, uh, and even consumer staples. Well, but I thought that cyclical stocks, the super cyclical sector, includes such things as basic materials as well as consumer cyclicals, financial services, and real estate. Well, it varies. Uh, If you think about, uh, for example, materials, the material sector has its own issues, most importantly, the deceleration and economic growth in China and pretty much the uh, end of the huge construction boom in China, both of which demanded vast quantities of raw materials. Uh, China accounted for something like 50% plus of the total world's demand for cement some years ago, and that's going to erode pretty rapidly. Uh, And the same thing follows through for iron ore and steel and all of the other industrial uh, metals, and you're seeing the the fallout of that for companies like Caterpillar and mining companies and, and so on. So I wouldn't look for that to uh, uh, have a stronger economy more than offset that very, very powerful secular trend working against those sectors. Uh, the others, like uh, financial services, absolutely, that's going to be one of the prime beneficiaries. That sector has done very well already. 
up roughly 20% since the election. Uh, but Would you fact, still buy into financials today? Yeah, I think the valuations are still attractive, and I would buy into financials. Any specifics, whether you're talking regional banks, money center banks, or non-financial, non-bank financials? Uh, I definitely like the money center banks. I think they are still pretty inexpensive, uh, and deregulation uh, plus lower interest rate, plus lower, uh, uh, plus mon- I'm sorry, plus a widening of interest rate differentials because of rising rates, uh, increasing the rates that they earn versus the rates they pay, plus uh, the deregulation. Both of those should work very powerfully for them. Well, let me just give you a couple, and you can just give us a nod almost, you know, whether it's Bank of America, the yield there, 1.3%, the stock is up 32% this year. Uh, still like it. Okay. How about Citigroup? Do you think they'll benefit? Absolutely. Still like that one as well. Any regional banks? Uh, we do like some of the regional banks. Um, the regional banks should in, should benefit from the rise in interest rates. Again, the same phenomenon of a rising in that interest margin. Uh, uh, PacWest is uh, one that we like. PACW. Uh, Umqua is another one we like. Um, uh, Regions Financial in the Southeast, another one we like. Uh, Bank United, uh, also uh, in the Southeast. Now, you're not buying these because of the dividend yield, or are you? Well, in some cases we are, and in many cases we're not. We're buying them because they're attractive uh, investments. Because I'm just looking, for example, PacWest, up 26% uh, this year. The yield is over 3.5%. Right. That one fits into our income with growth strategy. So there we're buying it both for the yield as well as for the upside potential. But uh, City is a holding in our growth portfolio. The yield is still low there, but they have the ability to raise that dividend substantially over time. And until they get approval from the Fed, they continue to buy back a lot of stock. When Chuck Lieberman sits down around the New Year's table and someone asks, what is your most far-fetched investment strategy, meaning the one for an individual or an institution that can afford some bumps along the way? What does Chuck Lieberman say? Uh, One of the areas that I I like are some of the uh, non-bank financials, Uh, business development companies, and some of the uh, private investment companies, uh, companies like uh, uh, Blackstone Group. Uh, Those are very interesting. They provide pretty good yields, uh, and they should benefit from the healthier economy. They can sell off some of their investments uh, in a market that I think is going to be doing fine so they can uh, realize some of those big uh, investment gains. And you're putting your money with people like Stephen Schwartzman, who happens to run the Blackstone Group, right? Stock down 8% this year with a yield currently of over 6%. But do people have to be mindful that that yield can change, and it can change dramatically? And it changes uh, all the time. Yeah. Uh, it reflects their ability to realize gains, and uh, they've got a core business that's sort of recurring, and then there's a, another business that is much more uh, episodic, shall we say. Uh, so they need to be able to sell off assets. But the underlying value of that build business remains very, very attractive. And so when you ask for something that's a little bit off the mainstream, uh, that's one. I want to thank you very much for joining me. Chuck Lieberman is the Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner for Advisors Capital Management, where he helps manage over $1.3 billion. Joining us from Ridgewood, New Jersey. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.